The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Spring Seminar, Medical Issues and Biblical Counseling. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure to be here at the uh, IBCD conference. When I uh, told my friends back home that I was going out to San Diego and uh, I was going to have to suffer out here for the Lord, I, uh, I told, and told them that I was coming to the IBCD conference, one of my children looked at me and said, oh, the International Brotherhood of Crazy Doctors. <laughs> no, not really. Well, and you know, um, I, two years ago, a, um, an actor that I think most people know and, and uh, enjoyed uh, decided to end his life hung himself with his belt in his bedroom on the doorknob of a closet door. Uh, we knew him better as Peter Pan um, and as Genie in, in Aladdin. I, um, in that movie, Hook, which I consider one of the best movies ever made, music and, and the storyline and everything, um, before the last um, sword fight, uh, he and uh, Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman being uh, Captain Hook and he playing Peter Pan, uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, says something to the effect that death will be a great adventure. And um, then at the end of the movie, we see Robin Williams on a sunny London morning uh, looking out across life. And his statement at that point was that living will be a great adventure. And it, it's almost as if they had traded, traded parts. It's hard to make sense of things like that, but uh, that didn't keep a lot of people from trying to do so. It's almost unavoidable. We want to know why. What was it that, that, that changed in that man's life that drove him to it? Later on, we found out he was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. We don't know if that had affected him and resulted in him killing himself or if he just simply didn't want to go on living and end that way. It's hard to say. We don't know. But we, but we ask, we demand an explanation, we want to know that there was some good reason, and inevitably, it seems, it descends into blaming. There has been a lot said about how we as a society don't do enough to keep things like this from, from happening, and generally it centers on how we as a society view mental illness. As one writer at the time said, who will remain unnamed, because he's a nice fellow, and but, um, but, but what he said illustrates the, the problem. So what can we do as people of faith to address issues of mental illness? Churches need to stop hiding mental illness. The congregation should be a safe place for those who struggle. We should not be afraid of medicine. We need to end the shame. The fact is, mental illness is real, and it's really mental illness. Now, there's a lot in that statement that I can, I can agree with. Churches should be safe places for strugglers. We shouldn't be afraid of medicine. I'm not. Of course, I'm a doctor, I guess. We really aren't Christian scientists, are we? No, we're, we're not anything like that. And shame has never been much of a motivator to lasting change. And I, and I can tell you that there are real illnesses which can dramatically affect the way an individual thinks, the way he feels, and the way that he acts. On the other hand, I, I do have a subtle disagreement with what the writer said. It isn't that churches don't care or that we're trying to hide anything. Every church that I've been a part of since 1986 has or has had or has 
a biblical counseling program. I'm, I'm privileged to be able to attend and be a part of the ministry at Faith Church in Lafayette, and they have for three decades been uh, do, doing everything they know how to do in order to help those who come in, drowning in almost any kind of um, diagnosis that you can find in the DSM-5. So the problem isn't that the church doesn't care enough or that the government isn't spending enough, which is usually another theme. The problem is really much simpler than that. The problem is in the definition of the term mental illness. I don't know what you have in your mind's eye when, when you hear that term mental illness, but uh, what comes to my mind is Olivia de Havilland in the snake pit. Now, that's probably, uh, I'm seeing some recognition, people shaking heads. If you've never seen it, get on Netflix, d download it, and go watch it. It's about a 1940s movie in which she was the unfortunate inmate in what was then called an insane asylum. And during the movie, they even have uh, uh, an episode where she is, uh, receives electroconvulsive therapy or, or shock treatment. I can remember a psychiatrist asking us what we thought about, when I was in medical school, asking us what we thought shock treatments looked like. And, and he said, I bet most of you have figured it out from watching the snake pit. And he was absolutely right. We're around the room, every last one of us. That was, what we, that, that was what set the barometer for what we thought about it. And then, or I, I see the, the inmates at Central State Hospital when I was about oh, seven or eight years old. We'd drive down 10th Street going out to my Aunt Lavetta's house, and um, we'd drive by there, and I'd see the people behind, standing behind the fence looking out. And I didn't know why they were in there or what was wrong with them, but I knew I didn't want to be in there with them. I, I could understand that. You know, so the societal definition in 1957 was easy, clear and easy to understand. Mental illness meant people who were disconnected from reality and who needed to be someplace where they could be protected, if only they had been. You know, that, that was the problem. Now today, a committee has taken that 1957 diagnosis and stretched it, stretched it from the 150 diagnoses that existed then to 300 diagnoses and categories of diagnoses uh, in a 950-page book called the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. Henceforth, I will say DSM-5. It's just easier to say it. Um, when the writer demanded that we acknowledge the reality of mental illness because it's real, what, what he was calling upon us to do, in essence, was to endorse the contents of that 950-page book. The DSM-5 is the current societal definition of mental illness. Now, the problem that the DSM-5 brings to the equation is simple. In it, let me move on here. Yes. In it is normal and even abnormal behavior that is classified as, as disease. Um, Alan Francis, who, who wrote the, uh, who, who was the, the head of the uh, committee that did the DSM-4, uh, who's a critic of the DSM-5, uh, noted that uh, the DSM-5 suffered from what he called diagnostic inflation. Perfectly normal and or perfectly abnormal behavior is converted to disease. Now, new diseases in that revision are as follows. Patients who worry about having medical illness can be diagnosed with somatic symptom disorder. As I read recently that if, if you're sick and you want to convince yourself that you're dying, just take your symptoms and plug them into Google. Being forgetful in our golden years, which is becoming more meaningful every year to me, um, is, is now mild neurocognitive disorder. 
Overeating is binge eating disorder. And now the FDA has approved Vyvanse, which is an amphetamine patch, uh, for the treatment of binge, binge eating disorder. My favorite is, dis is DMDD, DMDD, Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder. That's childhood tantrums. I have grandchildren who are afflicted with it. And I suspect it was probably genetic to some degree. And, but when my father confronted it with his three sons, he had a different acronym for it back then. He called it B-R-A-T. And he had a compelling way of dealing with it. And it, it worked pretty well for me and my brothers. So, on the one hand, we have those who demand we affirm the existence of mental illness in order to meet the definition of compassion. If we don't believe that everything in that book is true, then we're not going to be compassionate people. And on the other hand, we are faced with no certain way to be sure that all the diagnoses in the book are valid. And that leaves the church in a difficult spot. Should we affirm everything in the book is real and is really really mental illness, as the guy said, in order to be compassionate. But wait, wait, don't buy yet. It's like those knives at night on television. You know, if you wait, you can get two. Yeah, anyway. Before you answer the question, there are others who are struggling with it too, who have nothing to do with the church and have little to do with biblical counseling. There's a major argument going on right now as to whether or not all the diagnoses in the DSM are real illnesses. And miraculously, the church has nothing to do with it. Think of that. An argument that we, we're not having in church. Of course, churches never have arguments or anything like that, do we? So, instead, it is between those who, um, uh, who believe that all inconvenient and difficult behavior, um, uh, are th all those things are neurobiological disorders. In other words, in, in any kind of behavior that is inconvenient or uh, undesirable, is a, is a result of some chemical neurological defect in our, in our brains. They, they are made up by psychiatrists and physicians for the most part. On the, in the other corner of the ring are the psychologists and the social workers who do not view it that way at all. In fact, do not even think that it's maybe even very helpful to put a disease label on every problem that everybody ever comes in to talk about. In fact, they think that maybe if they just went and talked to somebody who understood them, that they would be just as well off. Um, so, as I, as I said last night, a good example of that, because uh, I know a good number of you weren't here last night, uh, Jerome Wakefield and Alan Horowitz have written a very good book called The Loss of Sadness, How um, Psychiatry Has Turned uh, Sadness into Depressive Disorder. It's a good book. It's about 350 pages. It's the kind of book that you need to have gotten a good night's sleep and had a cup of coffee before you start reading. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't say it was a John Gresham novel, but it's just full of, of good research. And in it, they say that 90% of people today who are being labeled with depression are far more likely to be struggling with normal sadness and that that leaves 10% who struggle with disordered sadness, which is what we used to call depression when I graduated from medical school back before the Revolutionary War. The, uh, you know, if, if you could tell me why you were sad, um, I, I would not give you a diagnosis of depression. We'd say you were grieving over a loss or something like that. But if you couldn't tell me why it was you were struggling with sadness, then it would be likely that we would diagnose you with major depression. When the DSM-5 was launched in 2013, a large group of psychologists in the British Psychological Society revolted. And they said the diagnoses in the DSM-5 were of limited value, limited reliability, and questionable validity. 
As one psychologist said, it was unhelpful to see mental illness issues or mental health issues as illnesses with biological causes. They didn't think it really helped very much at all. So it appears that secular psychology and psychiatry are not uniformly in agreement with men about mental illness. So why should we be? Where, and, and, and then beyond that, where is the truth in all of it? Now the problem is that as we do counseling we, and as we seek to help those who struggle, we encounter people who come in with an amazing number of acronym labels, don't we? You know, the folks come in with labels like PTSD, OCD, ADHD, SAD, BPT, and ODD. And the counselees who come with them, with those labels, are suffering. And they sincerely believe, they, they sincerely believe that they're in the grip of a real disease because that's what people who are in authority in their lives have told them. The question we need to answer is which one of these labels are and which one of the labels are not diseases? No, that, that's the trick. It's important because none of us wants to be counseling anybody for um, autoimmune Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis and hyperthyroidism um, for worry. You know, we, we, for, we, we don't want to be accusing them of sinful worry. Now, would you like for me to translate all that? <laughs> Here we go. I'm not really anxious or worried, it's just my thyroid's running twice as fast as it ought and I can't sleep, my hair's falling out and I'm losing weight and my insides seem to be running faster than a racehorse at Los Alamitos. That is what Hashimoto's thyroiditis is and it could be easily mistaken for anxiety or an anxiety disorder. So we need to know what's the difference between those things. We need to, we need to know that difference because even though we don't want to be attempting to convince individuals that when they struggle with the emotional fallout of disease, that their struggle is solely due to sin. We don't want to be in that position, but at the same time, we don't want to be shipping people off to physicians whose problems have nothing to do with medicine and everything to do with their relationship to the Lord, do we? And everything, and has everything to do with the fact that they, they live in a body in, broken in a Romans 5.12 sense, where Paul said, Therefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so then death passed upon all men for all of sin. And that we live in a world of fallen men. If you didn't believe it, you should have just watched the presidential debate the other night. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if, I, you know, I, I assume that there is nothing that is too outrageous to talk about these days. <laughs> That's the only thing I can say. Having, I didn't watch it. I, I just read the, the things that came out afterwards, and I, and I said that somewhere on Facebook, my mother is climbing out with a bar of soap looking for them right now. <laughs> ah. So this is an, a vitally important question. It's important because the answer decides how we'll care for the individuals who come with the label. It determines the risks of treatment that we're willing to subject them to. And the risks are real. You know, I read a study not long ago that said that, you know, we, we've been told by the folks who manufacture and sell the medicines that we are, that maybe uh, the side effect profile is about 5 to 10 percent, that only 5 to 10 percent of the people have side effects. Well, somebody did a real study and went and asked the folks who were taking it, and what they found out was that 50 to 60 percent of the people who take these medicines have side effects. And that's vitally important when one of the major side effects is suicidal ideation. You know, it, it just becomes very vitally important. So, so then, how can we in biblical counseling equip ourselves to understand what's medical and what's not in the counselees who come to see us with their struggles and their labels? 
How can we do that? How can we bridge the gap, the distance between medical science and medicine and the Bible? Uh, a while back, a friend of mine told me th that somewhere in the world of biblical counseling, someone has declared me to be an integrationist. I, I suppose that means that they think that I'm trying to take psychological theory and mix it together with the Bible in order to arrive at treatment plans or programs that the uh, American Psychiatric Association and the broader evangelical community will both like and then be happy with me. They are wrong. That is not what I do. And my friend said they must not be reading anything I write. What I have done for the last 20 years to my to the best of my ability is to understand how medical science fits into the absolute truth of scripture and not vice versa. Real scientific fact never contradicts the Bible, period. And when science appears to contradict scripture, it's either because our scientific facts, our settled scientific facts, which change every five years or so, um, are wrong, or we fail to understand the Bible properly, much like Galileo and the Pope in that argument about whether we were in the center of the universe or the world was round or, or something like that. So if we're going to understand what part of mental illness is real and what part is truly medical, then we first ought to find out what the Bible says about medicine. All right. Three stories. First story. I'm impressed at the number of people who are willing to look at me and say that the Bible is not a medical textbook. You know, you'd think after 40 years and any number of medical textbooks that I've read that I'd understand that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd, I'd know that. But that's not what they mean. That's not what they mean at all. What, what they are saying is that once a person's behavior, emotions, or thinking have been declared a mental disorder or problem, then the Bible has little or nothing to say about it, little or nothing to say about it. After all, what does the Bible have to say about strep throats? Well, as is often the case, that's a little too easy, isn't it? Simple answers for simple questions. I didn't say simple people, I just said simple questions. The Bible actually says a lot about medicine. And why shouldn't it? You know, the God who inspired it to be inerrantly written by the men who wrote it down knew all about what medicine was going to be like in the 21st century, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. So what we know about medicine today from reading a first century Bible? Let's look at a couple passages. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 41 through 48. Luke chapter 8. It's a familiar story. It's the story of the woman who had been having a gynecologic bleeding problem for 12 years. 12 long years she'd been doing this. Luke, the physician. Yes, Luke is the patron saint of doctors. He wrote about it and said the bleeding couldn't be healed by anyone. And at least no doctor could at the time. But the woman came up from behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Now, you know, granted, the technology of the time and the understanding of disease was somewhat primitive. They didn't understand how vital blood was to human living. In fact, at that time, they were bleeding people, thinking that they were releasing bad humors. And, um, and as a result, you know, some people died from being taken care of by a doctor. They didn't understand uh, and had no CAT scans, no ultrasounds, no laboratory tests. 
I doubt that in that society that, that, at that time that Luke would have been allowed as a physician to even to have done a proper physical exam of the patient in order to try to determine what the problem actually was. Couldn't even do that. And in reading this, you might be tempted to think that Luke is being amazingly transparent about this. Yeah, I mean, he said nobody could cure, no doctor anyway, unless you read the parallel passage in Mark. Go to Mark 5. In verse 25, there Mark describes the same scene, but he adds some details that Luke, the physician, left out. And what does he say about the same woman in the same situation, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. <sighs> Obviously, Mark didn't feel the need for professional courtesy that Luke did. <laughs> Spent all, not helped, made worse. All I could think of that as I read that as a physician was, ouch. So what can we learn about medicine at any given time in history and now from the Bible? There are just some things that medicine can't fix right now. And that is always going to be the case until the Lord returns. It may be because the current state of the science of medicine is not adequate for the job. That was the case for that poor woman's GYN difficulty. And it remains the case for many medical problems today. When medicine cannot help, it will be because we either do not have the technology or because the, in order to diagnose it and care for it or because it lies outside the realm of medicine altogether, which is the case, I would submit to you, for almost most all of the diagnoses in the DSM-5. Most all of them actually fall outside the realm of anything that medicine can do for people. First story. Second story. Sick need a physician. Direct quote out of Mark 2.17. Jesus was taking some significant criticism at the time, being level at him for eating with tax collectors and other sinners. And this is his response. From the lips of God to our ears... It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The sick need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So from the lips of God to our ears, there are medical ailments that require medical treatment. Period. There are diseases which affect the human brain and result in thinking and action and emotions that may benefit from taking medicine. Period. Third story. The current standard of care will not always be the same, may not always be helpful, even, even currently. Uh, when I started out um, practicing medicine, I, I took the advanced cardiac life support test, which in oh, 1977 or 1978 was a real palm-sweaty sort of event. You had to know 30 drugs. You had to know all the doses right. You had to get it right every time in the test. If you didn't, you flunked, and you had to come back and do it all over again. Um, now it is down to about three or four or five drugs at the most, and, you know, you can get it done in an afternoon. And, and the question is, is why? I mean, are, is advanced cardiac life support less important than it was back then? And the answer is, of course not. What we found out was that most of that stuff that we're leaving out now didn't help. In fact, some of them made things entirely worse. That's what we discovered. The standard of care, which was chiseled in stone in 1976, is not the same standard of care today at all. So, look at John chapter 5, and let's see how the standard of care changes over time. Familiar story, it's the pool, um, it's the guy who was crippled for 38 years 
beside the pool of Bethesda. And it says in there that in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. And they were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after seeing the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. I am not a Greek scholar. I, I read Greek at a probably fifth grade level. You know, I, like reading the Star, Indianapolis News or something or other. I, I, can, I can read at about that level. And I, but I can tell you that the part here where it talks about the angel going down and stirring up the waters is considered by many to be a late addition. Uh, you know, it occurs in later manuscripts. It doesn't occur in earlier manuscripts, which means that maybe somebody wrote in an explanation at some point as to why they were all sitting around the pool and, and waiting for the moving of the waters. It doesn't necessarily mean that an angel went down and stirred the waters up every once in a while and that if you jumped in first, you were healed. But that was how they viewed it. This is what they thought. And, and so the standard of care was what? If you were crippled in the, in the first century, uh, well, somebody carried you down every day down to the pool at Bethesda, and you sat there, and you hoped you could jump in first. That's what you hoped. Now, of course, this guy had been doing that for how long? For almost four decades. And Jesus comes up and looks at him and says, would you like to be healed? Do you, want, do you wish to get well, or do you want to keep trying to jump in the pool every time somebody thinks the water has been disturbed? And his answer is, sir, I, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Of course, it was on Saturday, and for that the Jews would attempt to kill him eventually. There was a guy who'd been sitting there for 38 years trying to get his physical problem, illness, fixed according to the widely believed standard of care of his day. But in essence, what does Jesus tell him? Well, he tells the man to believe him and dump the current standard of care for the day. That's exactly what he tells him. For many of the DSM-5 diagnoses today, we're currently using a standard of care that's not very helpful. While it may be useful to describe a child as having uh, ODD, although I, I really think that's kind of sad in a way, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, but the acronym says that the child is odd, yes. <laughs> But describing them that way does nothing to help them change. And I can tell you that treating them medically is not much better than waiting on the moving of the water. So what three things have we learned about medicine this morning so far? So medicine can't fix everything. The sick need a physician. And the standard of medicine, the standard of care of medicine changes and sometimes doesn't help. All right? Now, the problem in all of this controversy uh, about med mental and medical illness is not ours alone. The source actually started with, it starts with the shifting definition of disease. If you want to know what a mental illness is, then the first thing you need to know or decide uh, is what the definition of a medical illness is. You know, what, what is it to be actually sick? The dictionary definition of medical illness is a pathologic change in the body. Now, pathologic change in the body means a change at the cell level, uh, which results in a change in function that results in symptoms. Uh, easily, um, an easy example is diabetes. You know, your, your, pan your pancreatic cells that make the uh, insulin quit working are killed by a virus. Uh, you no longer produce insulin. Your blood sugar rises. That's pathology, all right? 
So you have to have a pathologic change in the body. It must be objective, a disorder of structure or function that produces specific signs or symptoms that affects a specific location and is not just the result of a personal or a physical injury. This is not a new argument. It started back 1,500 years before the birth of Christ with uh, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, who every once in a while said something that we remember him for, like, do no harm. First, primum no notre. First, don't hurt anybody. You know, if you're, if you're going to try to help people, at least don't do things that cause them more grief than, than they had before you saw them. And, and then another one that he said was don't cut for stone, which loosely translates out to mean don't do surgery for money. You know, you, you do surgery for the benefit of the patient, not, not for the check that you will eventually get at the end. But he was saddled with a couple of things which made his pronouncement about medicine, pronouncements about medicine suspect at times. He really, he, he unfortunately lived at a time with the Greeks when they forbade uh, dissection. In other words, if a person dies, you were not allowed to carve them up and take a look and try to figure out why, which is really, you know, at the foundation of all understanding of medicine is to look at a, 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 a dead human body and figure out how it worked. So he had absolutely no understanding of how, how the body worked. And then he uh, hooked himself up with, this th with the humoral theory of medicine, which believed, uh, said that you had four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, and all disease came as a result of an imbalance of those four humors. And I can tell you that idea persisted in, in, the, in the United States until the early 1900s. You know, we, we still had people wandering around trying to, to explain disease on that basis. It wouldn't change much until the early 1800s when physicians would begin to study Disease with microscopes. Now, Rudolf Burkow, he's the guy with the smile up there. Um, it almost looks like a mugshot. For you know, I've always said that if I'm ever arrested for something, I don't care what they tell me, I'm still going to smile for that mugshot. Why? Because everybody in a mugshot looks guilty. Yeah, because because don't smile or we won't take your picture. Uh, anyway, um, in his defense, that's that's what they told people back in when in, at that time was you know if, if you were going to have a picture taken, you shouldn't smile. He would have been much better off smiling. I don't suppose, though, he might have had bad teeth. But we, Well, anyway. Um, Verkow became the father of modern pathology and one of the leaders in moving our understanding of disease away from mysterious humors to pathology. And pathology for Verkow was the change at the cell level that caused disease. Along with other men, such as Pasteur and Koch and Ehrlich, they killed the idea that disease happened by spontaneous generation. And with their microscopes, they discovered the infectious causes of disease. For Verkow and Ehrlich, disease was caused by infecting organisms. And the goal was to find substances that would not just make you feel better. And that's exactly how he phrased it. Would not just make you feel better, but instead would kill the disease and leave the patient alive. That, that was what they were looking for. Medicine that would kill whatever the bug was and not kill the patient. And as long as medicine has stayed with a pathologic basis uh, uh, definition of disease, it has done well and done nobly. When it strays from pathology and, 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 the, and a pathologic definition, we end up with diagnoses like dysfunctional mood dysregulation disorder. That, that is the outcome eventually. Now, how is mental illness defined? Mental illness is defined as a health condition that changes a person's thinking, feelings, feelings and behavior, and that causes the person distress and difficulty in functioning. Now, what is absent in that definition? Pathology. Yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously not there. The, you know, the, 
And it does so for a compelling reason. The, way that, the reason why they leave it out is, as uh, the Surgeon General of the U.S. during the Clinton administration, David Satcher, once said, it was very difficult to make a diagnosis of a mental disorder because few have any known pathologic change in the human body, period. Out of hundreds, out of the hundreds of DSM label diagnoses, few have known pathology uh, at the cell level that we understand. And the result is that when we do not understand the cause of the disease, it makes it nearly impossible to divide, devise testing that will allow us to validate or confirm the diagnosis or to deny the presence of the disease. And that leaves us with hundreds of DSM diagnoses that can be made only on the basis of a personal subjective testimony of the patient and then described out of theory. We struggle with regard to mental illness today because in the area of mental health, we choose not to require pathology as the definition of disease, not because we don't care or not because we're trying to hide something. That's where the problem is. Now, there will be times that physicians cannot give ev objective evidence for real disease. Uh, my, my favorite is migraine headaches. Now, my dear wife, who's seated someplace in the back of the auditorium, has migraine headaches. Um, and uh, in fact, she had one coming out here when we were driving to the airport to come out here. We, we were driving down the road, and she looks over me and says, I can't see anything. You know, she had the, the visual aura, which was a little distressing for me since I was riding in the passenger seat of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the, uh, the daughter, we have two daughters, one that looks a little bit like both of us and then one who looks exactly like her. And, in fact, the one who looks exactly like her, people will run into her and think that she is her, you know, they, they, without the interval 30 years or 25 years of change. And um, so the one who looks a little like me doesn't have migraine headaches. The one who looks exactly like her mother does. You know, so it's, it's very genetic. And there isn't a doctor that I know of who would say that migraine headaches is an, isn't a disease uh, disorder type, type problem. Of course, I do reflect on the fact that the reason why they both have headaches may be because they have to live with me. So there are times when we won't be able to tell you what the pathology is because technology just isn't available for us to do it. And at those kind of times, it's, I, I, I say that physicians need to re render judgments that are non-judgmental non-judgmental judgments, and to do more research. All right. Now, I would say that maybe the best answer to the question, uh, what's medical about mental illness, might be found if we decided for just a moment to drop both the men mental and uh, medical labels and just talk about illness. You know, and what the effect of illness is upon the uh, emotional thinking and, and behavior of individuals who struggle with them. There are many illnesses that result in patients having an emotional struggle, and so we're going to look at a few very quickly. The first is uh, obstructive sleep apnea and sleep deprivation. How uh, many of you in here, I did this last night, we'll do it again, how many of you slept eight hours last night? There'll be more of you because I did this to them last night. Okay, uh, maybe a third of the group. How many of you slept six hours or less last night? Yeah, a lot more. All of you are operating out of sleep deprivation. And I can tell you that from a counseling and a medical viewpoint, that sleep deprivation is probably the largest cause of depression and anxiety in the United States today. 
people burning the candle at both ends, um, trying to, you know, trying to stay up and watch Jimmy Fallon. I can no longer stay up late enough to watch people. I don't know what's happened to me. You know, it's like I, I turn the TV on, poof, I am gone. But then I wake up at five o'clock in the morning and don't, don't need an alarm clock anymore. The, um, so people who are trying to stay up too late at night and then knock themselves out of bed at five in the morning in order to get their, get their day done, that's one source of sleep deprivation. Another is obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, things that come from obstructive sleep apnea are many, but anxiety and depression can be them. It's also a source for the behavior that is identified as ADHD in children. You know, if you, see a, if you see a kid who's being, someone who's trying to tag ADHD on his back, but he's sitting in church and he's leaned his head back against the top of the pew and he's passed out, you know, there are two things you can say about it. One is he'll be snoring, and, which is a little distressing for the pastor. And, but, but the other is, is why can't he stay awake? And the reason why he can't stay awake is he's not getting normal restorative sleep at night. So uh, that, that's one source. All right, a medical ailment that has behavioral and, and emotional and thinking struggles. Then there's Cushing's disorder, tumors of the adrenal glands and pituitary that result in overproduction of cortisol and steroids can result in individuals uh, who have anxiety, depression, irritability, and paranoia, and panic attacks. Um, that those are uh, tumors, of the, tumors of the adrenal gland that result in, in too much um, steroid production. Lupus is an autoimmune disorder. Uh, that in which the body's uh, immune system decides that somehow you're foreign and decides to set out to harm you as a result. And people with lupus are well known to have problems with depression and anxiety. Porphyria is a disorder, a genetic disorder of metabolism of blood, uh, the hemoglobin in, in, in your red cells. And it can result in skin, liver, abdominal, and central nervous system and psychiatric problems, including restlessness, agitation, hallucinations, hysteria, disorientation, delirium, all kinds of problems. This is a mental, a medical illness that causes things that people would have otherwise at different times in history called a mental, a mental disorder. Uh, people who have uh, liver disease, hepatic encephalopathy, individuals who have... Uh, uh, serious liver disease, uh, which results in, in difficulty with uh, the way that their body handles uh, protein and ammonia. Uh, with, with elevated ammonia levels, start having struggles with their ability to think and think well and to process information. Folks with hyper and hypothyroidism. Um, the uh, hypothyroidism uh, can, uh, can result in people being um, uh, psychotic. Uh, having, having psychosis. It's called myxedema madness. Um, it can also uh, result in them being depressed. Uh, people who are hyperthyroid can have problems that resemble anxiety. So me again, medical illnesses that cause, that have a mental illness picture. Then there is uh, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is, is probably the most uh, exciting uh, spot in medicine and psychiatry today. Why? Because in January, uh, a group of researchers published an article in Nature which outlined the, um, the genetic um, defect in schizophrenics that results in the change at the C4 level in the complement system that probably then uh, further results in the damage that occurs in the brain. Uh, yeah, it's a wow. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I can tell you that I, I thought I, I could see this coming last year because there were other studies that were, that were, there were hints about blood dyscrasias and stuff like that that were connected to schizophrenia. And, um, but 
what, what, this, uh, what I think will happen eventually is that schizophrenia will cease to be a uh, psychiatric disorder altogether. Why? Because it's, it's medical. Yeah, and, and, you know, when you get it the first time, what happens is somebody checks your genetic situation and your complement levels, and, and, and then they treat it. Now, the guys who did the research were very careful to say that, you know, we are just inside the door. Somebody kicked the door open, there's light in the room, but we are just inside the door, and it's going to be a while before we get to testing and treatment. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, not going to happen tomorrow, but it's going to happen. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the big thing. So there you have a, a mental, uh, you know, it's act, you know, always been considered a mental disorder, but one which I will tell you is medical. You know, it's gonna, it, met, a medical disorder with an adverse outcome. Then there's polypharmacy. Do you all know what polypharmacy is? Yeah, it's the United States. <laughs> yeah, it's people who are taking 10 and 12 different medications at a time, written by three or four different physicians sometimes who don't talk to each other. You know, when I have patients come in and they tell me that they have problems these days, my first response isn't, what new disease do you have? What I really want to know is, what medicines are you taking and which one of them have that side effect? And most of the time, a lot of times, it will be just exactly that. The adverse interaction of the drugs that you're taking that have been given to you by multiple different people. Polypharmacy is a huge issue in the United States today. Uh, and I can remember when I first started practicing medicine, if someone said that you had committed polypharmacy, they were... It was, they were, this was an insult, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's polypharmacy. I, I, when I first started practicing, I, had a, I took over a practice in which most of the patients were on 18 different drugs, most of which described in the PDR, which didn't do anything. You know, they, they fell into the non-effective uh, category that they used to have in the, in the old PDR, and I spent most of my career trying to peel people off of those, off of those medicines that really didn't do them any good but cost them money and had had side effects. Well, I'll tell you folks, we're back. Uh, now, understand this, that, and don't go home and quit taking all your medicine. You know, the medicine for diabetes, blood pressure, and all that kind of stuff actually works, and people do live longer, but it isn't that as though they are without side effects. Uh, that's it. All right. Now, so, um, there are all the medical diseases with known pathology. Let's move on to uh, we've, we've looked at what's mental about medical illness. Let's turn the question back and let's find out how much medical there is in some DSM-5 disorders that we classify as mental illnesses. So first are all DSM-5 diagnoses that have one thing in common. Uh, for the most part, there's no pathology, no reproducible pathology. Starting with PTSD, symptoms and problems associated with post-traumatic stress disorder are real. They are as real as the, the events that occurred that resulted in the person having them. Uh, so don't misunderstand anything that I would tell you about this to mean anything other than that. But there is no underlying pathology, period. And the treatment is not very, use, very good. Cognitive behavioral therapy and, and an SSRI antidepressant, but really not as much help as we would hope. In my experience, the medicine is probably not a deciding factor in the outcome of those with post-traumatic stress disorder. Instead, it's counseling, family support, purpose in, a purpose in life to return to, a job to return to. Um, all those things are, are vitally important. A, uh, a PTSD holds a great opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, for biblical counseling to help individuals who struggle with the awful memories of war or the things that happen to them as civilians, you know, the, the, the assaults, the sexual abuse, all those things. Uh, great opportunities there. I spoke about it a, 
three years ago. You can go back and listen to the lecture. The, the, my ideas about it haven't changed much since then. Uh, the wild card in all of it is traumatic brain injury, though. Uh, you know, most people who come back from war with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder probably also got their head banged around a bit. And, and so tra traumatic brain injuries are, are a significant, real, honest-to-goodness medical problem um, and, and contribute to the issue. Then there's ADD and ADHD. I'm not going to talk very long about this because I'm going to talk about it for an hour here, uh, not, not long into the afternoon. Um, uh, suffice it to say that I do not believe that ADHD is a disease. I believe it is a, a difference. I believe these children are different and the adults are different and they learn differently. And if you do not understand that they are different, you will struggle in trying to figure out ways, trying to figure out ways to help them. I also have this observation that attention span you're not born with. And attention span is not an innate skill that we are equipped with. There are things that we do automatically that, you know, we, we don't have to think about or learn how to do. Um, center, centering with uh, eating and metabolism and other things. Um, but uh, sitting still is not one of them. Uh, I, you know, if you have learned to do what you're doing right now, you learned that probably at the behest of a parent, I'll bet. That's where most of us learn how to do what you're doing right now. And, um, and, and most of us learned how to do it. Where, where do you think? School? Actually, I, I would say it was church, yes. Yeah. And what were you learning at church? You were learning to sit up and sit up straight, usually beside your mother, and act like you were interested in something that was absolutely boring the daylights out of you, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. My apologies to pastors. But when you're five years old, I mean, you know, the exegesis of Romans 12 really doesn't, doesn't mean much to you, you know, it just, just doesn't. But what, 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 what my mother was teaching me was that if I didn't sit up straight and act like I was interested, that I would pay a severe, terrible price when, <laughs> when it was over. And she gave me a gift. I've been able to do that ever since. I've, I've been able to sit up for hours at a time in classes and listen to people drone and, and not have any more interest in it than the man in the moon, but they thought I did. Oh, well, anyway. We'll talk more about ADHD later. Then there's OCD. Again, I am not going to talk a long time about OCD at this point because I am going to talk for an hour about it. But uh, I would tell you that you know, it's reasonable to say that I think that OCD is a confluence of unfortunate events, that there is a, definitely a difference in the brains of people who have obsessive compulsive disorder that make it difficult for them to stop thinking about something. And I'll tell you more about that in, in a moment or in a couple hours instead. Then we come to depression. How is, how, the question is, is how medical is depression today? As I said earlier, um, according to Hurwitz and, and Wakefield, 90% uh, of people being labeled with depression today are more likely to be struggling with normal sadness uh, uh, and, and grieving over that loss. That leaves the other 10%, which I think are, are real people who struggle and uh, whom I believe that biblical counseling has great answers. You know, I, I think biblical counseling has great answers for people who have medical problems that will not go away. How are you going to live? How will you respond to the situation, to your sad mood that you know you're going to have most days of the year? Well, most people have learned some uh, non-functional, non-biblical way to respond to it that causes them lots of trouble. And, you know, if they can come to understand that, if they can understand that, yes, there's probably something different about my brain and I see life differently, but I could learn how to respond to that in a biblical way that would glorify and honor God and, and be useful to the people around me, 
then I, you know, in my experience, they can do better. They can do better than they, than they would have. Then there's bipolar disorder one. I believe that there's no pathology for bipolar disorder one at this time, but I do believe it to be a disease, period. I, it, is a, uh, it is the companion of schizophrenia. If you read the history of mental illness, every place that, you know, the, the two things that persist throughout history that, that n almost never change are descriptions of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And, as, and, and I think that they represent the two real, or two of the most real, um, mental illnesses that we will see. And I suspect that their pathology is somewhat similar because they share similar symptoms. So, you know, that's why I'm excited about schizophrenia. I think if they kick the door open on schizophrenia, it's going to open a door for Alzheimer's and bipolar disorder and, and several other degenerative diseases of the human brain. So it, I, I think that's coming. I, I would tell you that um, folks who have mania when they are not manic need counseling. And, and it comes and goes. Uh, you know, averages about every 18 months for most of them, but it comes and goes. And, and, and people who've had two or three episodes need to take their medicine. They do. You know, it, it, until we have a better, a better way to treat it. And I would tell you that the way we treat bipolar disorder is really fairly crude uh, currently. Uh, but it will get better as we come to understand the pathology better. Um, but in between time, they, they are the sick who need a physician. And, 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 and in counseling them, we should be encouraging them in that, in that direction, is my belief. Then there's bipolar disorder, too, and all the other variants that don't include mania. The, the, uh, the short story on what I think that is, and it has to be short because I'm coming to the end here, um, is that I, I believe that bipolar disorder, too, is a reflection of the fact that we overdiagnose depression by a, by a factor of 90%. And then we put most of those people on antidepressants. And if you go read the side effect profiles of all the SSRI antidepressants, guess what you find? A description that looks like hypomania. That's exactly what you find. So I think what's happening is that we have all these folks who are getting overdiagnosed with depression who get overtreated. And then subsequently, and don't get any better because if you really don't have depression and you take an antidepressant, you wouldn't expect to get better. But you would expect to have all the side effects of taking it. Um, and so, and so that's, why, that's where I see the growth of bipolar disorder, too. So, as a physician and a biblical counselor, I, I think that's one of the places where we uh, have a great opportunity to help folks. So then, what's true about, uh, um, about life and counseling and medicine? In medicine, the things that we know to be most true are those illnesses that have known pathology. And I can tell you, we almost never have any arguments between medicine and biblical counseling about strep throats or diabetes. You just, you just don't. The problems we face and the criticism we receive are almost always common when, when the diagnosis comes out of the DSM-5 and has no known pathology. So how should we respond to this? And, and, and how should we deal with the controversy? Well, from my viewpoint, uh, it, I would always take the, uh, the inerrant, inspired statement of Scripture against unsettled science. You know, if you have to choose between a scientific description of a disease that has no pathology behind it and, and is likely to change in five years when they revise the DSM to the DSM-6, which are you going to choose? Are you going to change the Word of God settled forever in heaven? Uh, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
And as Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Well, when it comes to dealing with the DSM-5 issues of life, with all the acronyms, where's the best place to start? I would say start with the truth. Start with the settled truth of God, God's word. And then, how do I parse my way through this? I'll get to talk about this more, so I'm going to kind of jump through this quickly. I never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin, period. Never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. The Bible's always going to be true. Medicine will change. It changes regularly. Then, never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly does, period. I will not enforce my own societal biases or my own social preferences on people with the weight of Scripture. Never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly does. And then, always look for pathology uh, if you're going to label something a disease. I like 1 Thessalonians 5.14 in this regard. It tells us that we ought to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Help those who struggle with physical disadvantage. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the normally sad. Admonish the unruly, those without a goal. I think those are, that's a great passage. And then finally, be patient with all. You know, as we face and have to deal with people who criticize us for what we think about medicine and biblical counseling, I tell you the best, best way to approach it is don't zing back. I have never found arguments to be much use in convincing others of truth in either the Bible or medicine. Instead, I'd encourage you, what I do find to be useful in medicine is good research, and I'd say the same thing works in theology. Then, seek good for others inside and outside the body of Christ. In our conversations with, with those who we disagree uh, about mental illness, we ought to be seeking to glorify God and do them good in the process. I think we in biblical counseling right now have the greatest opportunity in our lifetimes to help people who are struggling most of whom have normal sadness over loss. So I'll leave you with three words and a verse. The first is, never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. The second is, never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly does. Third, look for pathology. And the fourth, speak and act as those who've been judged by the law that gives liberty, because judgment without mercy will be shown to those who are not merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James 2, 12 and 13. All righty, I'm a little over, but we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this time that we could look to your word and for the, for the answers and solutions to these kind of problems. God, I'd ask you to bless us as we seek to help those who struggle with these problems. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.